Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 29. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me every week is the caffeinated Mitchell Davis. What's up? Oh, yeah. Caffeinated is is definitely right this morning <laughs> <laughs> we're recording Start. a little bit earlier than we usually do so yeah yeah definitely <laughs> definitely had to get some fuel uh how, how you doing man uh going good man how are you i'm, I'm good uh this is a busy week as usual uh definitely uh a rough week on uh entertainers uh passing away uh yeah definitely uh, just uh, really surprised about Chuck Brown, especially after we we kind of talked about him last Sunday. Uh, the Godfather Go Go passing away. I guess he uh, he'd been he'd been ill in the hospital and kind of had pneumonia like symptoms. Um, yeah, that was that was a little unusual uh, to to hear that news. And then I guess it was Thursday. Uh, I was at work and I, I got a a notification on my phone that Donna Summer had passed. Uh, that was very surprising. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, she wasn't that old, you know. No, she was sixty-three, I think, and she she she'd been diagnosed with cancer a while back, but uh, she just kind of kept it, I guess, close to the chest that you know maybe she was a little more ill than people had had known because that was I had no uh, indication, you know, that she'd been ill. Which I mean, not like people. You know, they go to the hospital and, hey, you guys, I'm dying. You know, I mean, nothing like that. But um, I really love Donna Summer. I mean, Chuck Brown was one of those guys. I mean, I had a lot of respect for her. But Donna Summer was, I was a fan, I would I would say. She had so many massive hits in the, in the 70s and the 80s, especially, you know, obviously associated with the disco era, so-called disco diva, disco queen, however you want to look at it. Um, she was just one of those one of those very special music stars to me. I mean, I've liked, I've loved Donna Summer since I, I can remember, you know. And uh, her passing, it was that was pretty sad um, to hear about. But um, really, 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 really interesting goings on this week, you know. Just uh, some major players passing away yeah it's, it's weird because the you know we've had these things uh what like the last three or four episodes yeah like some kind of death to announce yeah um, yeah 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 crazy it's, and like i said law you know law of averages says you know that you know in a world of entertainers as big as the world we have eventually somebody's you know gonna pass but to have it yeah. happen that way especially with chuck brown that was that was a little strange, um, you know. I was, I was, I was really taken back by that. But wake up that next day, and I was like, "Really? Are you kidding me? We just, we just talked about that guy, you know?" And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was weird. Um, but moving on to uh, to music uh, from this week, we've got uh, an album by Oscar Brown Jr. Sin and Soul. Uh, then we're going to move on to Ruth Brown, uh, Miss Rhythm, a, a sort of a collection of her singles. Mm-hmm. 
then Jackson Brown, his album Late for the Sky. Then uh, 19th century classical composer Anton Bruckner, his Symphony Number no. 7. And finally, uh, we're going to close out with Jeff Buckley, his album Grace. So, yeah, Oscar Brown Jr. Let's let's get it going with Oscar Brown Jr. Um, his Sin and Soul released in 1960. And uh, Oscar Brown Jr. was an interesting guy. Uh, he was kind of an early herald of the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, a lot of the tunes on this album are very socially conscious and racially conscious. Um, I'd say a little ahead of a little ahead of their time, you know? Yep. I would, um, I would agree. Yeah. Um, you know, really prolific guy. I mean, not just a singer, but, uh, you know, an activist and poet and actor. And, uh, that really, the, the actor part really comes across on this album. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> some of these songs, uh, are almost like miniature plays, you know, that, that could easily be done on stage. Yeah. You know, yeah. In, he, in a he, playhouse. Def- he, he definitely had a, a playwright's, uh, spirit was a, was a playwright, you know, a literal playwright himself. I mean, just, uh, an amazing voice you know, first of all, an amazing social insight um, that I was very surprised by. I mean, I, I was kind of familiar with him, but but not, I had not ever listened to this record. And um, I mean, it just blew me away. I mean, every every song on this record is very good. And uh, Yeah, well, not just an amazing voice, man, but like a and his voice is like a chameleon, you know. I mean, he yeah. can he can change it so drastically, yes. depending on what he's trying to get across. It sometimes it sounds like a completely different singer almost. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was really prolific too. Wrote at least a thousand songs, which um, is amazing. Over, yeah. over a dozen musicals, uh, and apparently he started a trend in the jazz world among the jazz among jazz singers uh f- with uh, taking existing sort of jazz instrumental tunes and writing lyrics to go with them mm-hmm. um uh like there's a there's a track on this album called dat dare we're not going to play this one but um this one was an original instrumental written by bobby timmons and recorded one year earlier uh, by art blakey and the jazz messengers and then he took that tune and wrote lyrics to it and turn it into a song and and apparently that set a standard that continued with jazz vocalists after this but um yeah man what what is your impression of oscar brown jr had you had you heard oscar brown jr before like i said i was i was vaguely familiar with him but but not on on this level i I definitely had not listened to this record i i i knew that he had a song that um Cannibal Adderley uh, had had done a uh, mercy, mercy, mercy that he he had, you know, like you said, the the tradition of of composing lyrics and, and adding them to the song. I I had heard that, uh, but didn't really go much further than that. But this is just it, it's it's just very very amazing amazing recording. Um, yeah, he's he's just a guy that that had so much going on in his head obviously um 
just an amazing, like you said, like you said, an amazing voice, uh, a very, I guess what you would consider, you know, Afrocentric view, you know, on, you know, different social ills and, and, and I mean, as, as he is, you know, like sort of a civil rights activist, he, his, his music wasn't always, you know, as, as confrontational as, as, as some activists you would think, you know, some of it is, is much more, you know, pleasant as far as, you know, you know, introspective and, and looking towards the future, like, uh, you know, on, on the, I think the first song we're going to listen to Brown baby. Um, that's the second and, song, I oh, think no, that's the second track, but yeah, okay. definitely. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and like you were talking about with, with that dare, um, just a, just a, a song where he, he kind of takes a, a, a child's point of view, you know, and how little kids just ask questions about everything, which I am going through right now. <laughs> um, you know, why is, why is color color? Why is water wet? You know, can I have that elephant? Like, you know, the little kid says, I mean, just, and, and the, the fact that you, you realize as a parent, you know, there's no way you're going to answer every question, <laughs> you know, yeah. some of these questions are just, you know, they're going to have to find out, you know, as they grow up, you know, but it, it, it's a, it's a very good mix of, of what makes life good and, and what makes life bad. Another song, um, Bit him in, uh, which the book is is it's the first thing that the book talks about on this record. Um, I mean, it's a very unpleasant subject, you know, slavery. But the way that he portrays himself as the auctioneer over, you know, slaves at at a bidding auction, it, it's it's so very good. I mean, he kind of has the the cadence and the spirit and and. You know, the way he talks about the slaves as if they're they're just simple product, you know, sometimes even just less than product like cattle, you know, or, yeah, or yeah. pigs going off to auction and, you know, talking about the their teeth and their hips and, and their, you know, how how good they would breed. And, you know, I mean, and it's 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 a, a sobering reality in a way to, to think of what, what slaves had to go through and how horrible it must have been. But his portrayal is is so stark and so very good. And like I said, that voice, you you hit the nail on the head where you said he his is his voice is it's like a chameleon where it it does so many things, you know, um like the whale and uh another song, I guess the the, the first the actual first song we're gonna talk about, but I was cool that whale <laughs> <laughs> i know and i mean it, it 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 goes down into the root of of what that song is about where you know you're you're thinking that everything is cool and, and everything is all right and all of a sudden your train comes off the track you know for you know one reason or another and you know you, you kind of you know hit rock bottom and that that whale he lets out it's it's a miserable like all oh, this sucks this is awful you know what am i gonna do you know and but anyway yeah he um i'm very impressed with him he yeah i i believe he passed away um not too long ago about 2005 uh yeah he had some yeah. sort of something was going on where he had like some sort of a bone infection and um I, I really, you know, 
I, I, I really, really am going to try to get into him more. I mean, this this album in particular is 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 amazing. Apparently, he has another album he's done with Max Roach um, that I'm I'm going to try to listen to. Um, just influenced a ton of people. Uh, Mahalia Jackson back in the day covered uh, one of his songs, uh, Brown Brown Baby, as a matter of fact. And um, I mean, for Mahalia Jackson to want to do one of your songs, that's that's really saying something, especially back then where the the secular and the I guess what you would call gospel or inspirational music really were were not mixed at all. For her to think that highly of one of his songs to do it to me is very impressive because that didn't happen very often, um, especially back in those days. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah. anyway, um, yeah, I guess yeah. We could, I mean, I, I, I guess we could listen to the song unless you had something else you wanted to say. I mean, you know, um, yeah, let's listen I think, to but, it. But, about, but I was cool. Is that the song? Yeah. To? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, let's check it out. This is, but I was cool by Oscar Brown Jr. I've always lived by this golden rule. Whatever happens, don't blow your cool. You gotta have nerves of steel and never show folks how you honestly feel. I've lived my whole life this way. For example, take yesterday. I breezed home happy, bringing her my pay. Her note read, so long sappy, I have run away. I threw myself down across our empty bed. And this is what I said. For the road it at an all-night bar Wound up so loaded I tore up my car The judge threw the book at me And when I read his sentence there I said And that was But I Was Cool. And we're going to move on to Brown Baby, which we talked about a little bit. Um, And yeah, I mean, we're going from But I Was Cool, where he sounds a certain way. And yeah, those whales, I mean, um, really theatrical, that piece. Mm -hmm. And then we're moving on to this song, Brown Baby, that uh, it's it's completely different. musically uh it in his voice the way he sings his voice sounds completely different than it did on the previous track it sounds like something that almost should be on a different album of a different like in a different section of the record store you know it's like um uh it's like crooner slash folk singer he yeah. ch- he changes his voice you know almost like in this 
uh, Joan Baez tradition. So it's just him and this acoustic guitar. Uh, this is uh, not jazz at all. I mean, this is like a straight up folk song. Yeah, yeah, um, I would agree. And uh, yeah, what did you think of Brown Baby? Yeah, it's, it's first of all, it's just it's beautiful. I mean, a very beautiful song. I, I can understand Mahalia Jackson's uh, liking for it. Um, and then and, and you you talk about the the contrast in, in songs. Um, I love that. I mean, I love it when a record can can give you a, a different persona with each track where each song has its own sort of identity, because obviously, I mean, especially nowadays, you know, people can put out a record where you basically have one song that's either been remixed, you know, nine other times and and they make an album out of it or a song that, you know, is one good song and then maybe a few tracks that, you know, I guess you would maybe even consider throwaway tracks, but this is a very solid record where every song is good. And not only is that the thing, but every song is, is somewhat different. Uh, and, yeah. and it's style. I mean, like you said, some of them are, are somewhat jazzy and have a, a nice swing. Some of them are very theatrical, uh, where it's almost like watching a, 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 a musical or a play. And then you have songs like this one that are just somewhat solemn, but but very, very, you know, positive in, in the sense to where it, it's like a lullaby to to a child where, you know, they're they're singing about, you know, what what the child may see and and how the child should grow up, you know, uh, you know, respecting the code of justice, like this song says, and, you know, learning more than I'll ever know and seeing things that I'll never see. And, you know, just just trying to look at at, at the future of, of what may be in a, in a positive light, um, because I know that the say, like looking from Oscar's perspective, the things that he had to see and, and endure, you know, he's hoping that that his child will never have to go through some of those things. Um, you know, some of the injustice, some of the, you know, the problems and, and you know, understanding that, you know, every life has problems, you know, knowing that the, his child may may endure some things, but hoping that it'll be better, hoping that men will be, you know, more open minded, hoping that, you know, just. The, the world will be better, you know, less yeah, war, yeah. more peace, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, that, that's what that's that's kind of what I'm taking from this song. Right, right. And, and I would say this song is also heavily steeped in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And just like in the tradition of uh, the other folk stuff we've heard, you know, Joan Baez and the Almanac singers even. um yeah, it's a folk song deeply rooted in, uh, you know, social activism. Mm-hmm. So, Definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's check this out. Uh, unless there's anything else you want to say. Oh, just uh, looking at people that, that had covered his. I was I was thinking about Nina Simone also, too, this week, who she's made some really great covers of some of his songs. And I mean, the, the guy has. He had a, a bunch of people that he influenced. Uh, just a, a, an amazing, amazing figure. I mean, as far as civil rights and humanitarian work, and I mean, I mean, we could really go on and on. But I'm, I'm really glad to talk about him. Uh, is 
I mean, it's it's great to discover more about him because I really didn't know as much as I thought, you know. But anyway, that's that's really all I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a super interesting guy, and I mean, um, a guy that that uh, yeah, we could probably talk a lot about. Oh yeah. Um, and what he's done over his life and the sort of impact that he's made on not just on on music and musicians, but you know, a lot of other areas. But um, yeah, let's let's listen to this uh, second track from Oscar Brown Jr. This is Brown Baby. just heard brown baby by oscar brown jr and we're going to move on to the second album ruth brown uh the album is miss rhythm and uh this was released in 1989 but this is a collection of singles that were all recorded between 1949 and 1960 and uh ruth brown you know coming out of uh uh you know, like so many singers co- coming out of, a, you know, the church and the gospel tradition mm-hmm. um, into kind of, I think she started uh, singing in nightclubs, uh, more of a, like a blues and jazz singer, but were kind of, she was kind of pushed into the R&B and pop realm by uh, Atlantic Records, uh, who signed yeah. her. Yeah. And that's where I think where she really had her big success successes yeah yeah Yeah, what do you think think of ruth brown definitely one of the first artists that atlantic records struck sort of struck gold with as far as r&b music i mean atlantic records has a long history of uh you know r&b you know music um aretha franklin obviously one of the the major figures on that label um she uh 
was probably really one of the first, I guess what you would call R&B singers, which I, I didn't really think about that. But when you look at the timeline and when she started singing, there were a lot of blues singers and a lot of jazz singers at the yeah. time, but not really too many who fused, you know, soul and blues or R&B, you know, and I, that was something I wasn't really aware of. And um, she uh, basically took songs and from the perspective of, of how hard love could be made a living off of that. Um, you know, she, she often sung about, you know, being in love with, you know, people who you know, were very harsh, you know, disrespectful, maybe even abusive. Um, but still, you know, you know, kind of hanging on in the sense that I'll, I'm going to love you no matter what, you know, which apparently, you know, that wasn't really, you know, as popular, you know, until she really got into that direction. I mean, I know a lot of, there are probably plenty of blues songs like that, but, but not really, you know, you know, blues songs that had rhythm like this and, and crooned like this, um, where, you know, it was, you, you kind of had a, a mixture of, of blues and, and some jazz. And, and I would even say that Ruth Brown was, was an early influence on a lot of rock and roll records. Oh, I mean, absolutely, if you listen, Totally. You listen to her stuff. I, mm -hmm. I would say for sure that Ruth Brown has has definite leanings on, on rock and roll music before a lot of it started. The way the the way the saxophone sounds and the way the you know the the guitar and bass play together. I mean, there, there's no question about it. You know, so uh -huh. um, and, yeah. and people yeah, yeah. people are saying that Ruth Brown Atlantic Records is like the house that that Ruth built or the label that Ruth built. I mean. You know, I was like, wow, I, I didn't even consider that, you know, the fact that she was sort of there, like their cornerstone, you know. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I guess that house that Ruth built was like an uh, like an analogy to uh, Yankee Stadium. That's where they got that. But um, uh, OK, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess she sort of um, was one of the people that was instrumental in making Atlantic Records what it was, like you said. And, uh, you know, last week I, I was talking about, you know, everybody should watch the Ken Burns jazz because rock and roll and all that stuff is indebted to jazz. And Ruth Brown is really one of the links that you can see. You know, you, she's one of those artists where you can look at and see how we got from jazz to rock. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. she's one of those um, links in that chain. Uh yeah, yeah, we're going to start with uh, this song, Mama, He Treats Your Daughter Mean. Um, and uh, I think this is definitely one of those tunes you were talking about uh, that's a precursor to rock and roll. Um, mm -hmm. This is like a real rockin' sort of 50s blues, almost something you would hear at like a teenage dance or something. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's I'm, I'm glad you said that. There, there's such a distinction, again, between the the blues and the and the jazz roots, you know, R and B music and rock and roll music was really geared towards getting people out on the floor and dancing. That would that's that's one of those key distinctions where, you know, they wanted something that that had a steady beat that made people want to groove and and definitely made them want to dance. And I I think that's that's so important to to 
to talk about because it 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 had it had a goal you know the the music that they were making you know they they were in clubs they were in you know different places where they they had people coming in and they wanted people to feel good and they wanted people to get up and dance that's i think that's so important to note that the 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 r&b and or the rhythm in r&b i should say was definitely geared towards people you know grooving dancing um, and when you, you said that, I, I thought, you know, that that's something that that also distinguished her from so many other singers um, that came before her. And I mean, obviously, the title of the album is is rhythm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's listen to this tune cool. because I think it uh, it kind of does all the talking for itself, really. Yeah. Um, this is Mama. He treats your daughter mean. daughter mean and we're going to move on to teardrops from my eyes and this is definitely different in character from uh mama he treats your daughter mean this is more of a big band sort of setting uh something that you would more closely associate with jazz Mm -hmm. jazz singers and you know big band arrangement it's not like a you know like a 50s sort of rock band setup which uh mama he treats your daughter mean definitely was um, this is yeah, more of a throwback to uh, you know '40s big band arrangement sort of music, which is where yeah. she started, really. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What do you think of this one? Well, uh, and I, I'd agree with you. I mean that this is this is definitely kind of you know more towards uh, where her roots were. I mean her 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 bigger influence, I think, uh, as far as singers was uh, was Dinah Washington. Who was was definitely more akin to jazz and even big band style singing, um, and uh, Ruth could do that. But I think when I look when I look at Ruth, 
she she kind of had more than that. She definitely had, you know, a, a way of singing where she could roll with big bands, but she also had a very bluesy side, you know, a very, I just, I guess you would call juke joint side, which, you know, back in the day you had, you know, juke joints where, you know, you had places way back in the woods or, or wherever where people would go and, and party and dance and drink and gamble and, and do, you know, other stuff. And, you know, she just seems like, you know, somebody who could just, you know, keep the party going all night long, you know, just one of those singers that had so much soul and, and so much, you know, to bring to the table when it came to kind of gut bucket style singing, um, you know, and then singing about torment in songs, singing about love in songs. I mean, she just, she, she could really do that, you know, like no one before her, I think uh, like she, I mean, we're not talking about, there's a song called Stand on the Corner, which we're not we're not playing that song. But some of the, the lyrics in that song, she talks about uh, basically being left out on the corner at night and not knowing where she is. And, and she's praying to God, you know, and she knows she hasn't prayed to God in a long time because she hasn't been good for a long time, you know, but she's praying anyway. I mean, that that kind of blues, that kind of hurt feeling where you're you're at the end of your rope, so to speak. I mean. You know, and, and this song in particular also, I mean, you know, just someone who is is just very, very, you know, in in a bad way, you know, where, you know, they, they're in a relationship, they're in love and and it's just it's it's not working, you know, but they're they're loving anyway. And then the the band, the way they they play with her, I mean, they they get bluesy right along with her. I mean, you know, in, in a big band style, you know, just just really good stuff. I, I've, I've liked Ruth Brown for a long time. I mean, I think the very first time I really noticed her, she was on she was on a TV sitcom. I can't remember which one. She was on a, a bunch of different ones, but I I remember seeing her on TV and, and, and definitely distinctively uh, was in a, a John Waters hairspray movie. Yeah. That's the first yeah, time I, I, I remember. Really, yeah, I remember her from that. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a great great role for her. I mean, I. I'm grateful that 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 John Waters and his love for her put her in that movie because yeah. she kind of had been, you know, having a she was like in a funk, I guess you would say, where she really wasn't working that much. And then, you know, she went on to do, do some other things where I think she she won a Grammy and won a, a Tony for some other work she did on stage. I mean, you know, and then, you know, got inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um I think she passed away 2006, somewhere about there. She she's been passed away for a little bit, but she you know she kind of got you know you know some more accolades before she passed away. Because in between you know her fame back in the the 50s and 60s, I mean she she definitely went through some hard times. I think she had to she got to go back to doing like you know housework or something like that. I mean it was you know it was yeah. rough. Yeah, yeah. But uh. You know, definitely have a lot of respect for her. Oh, something else before we before we play the song. Ruth Brown uh, started an organization, the Rhythm and Blues Foundation, uh, which basically helps to fight for royalties uh, for musicians. Um, I did not know that until I was reading about her this morning. Yeah, yeah, uh, same here. Uh, yeah, I which think is very it, cool. Yeah, I think that started when, uh, like, maybe in the eighties when she won uh, some kind of court battle uh, to collect back 
royalties. Um, basically that, you know, we're not being paid to her, um, after, you know, her popularity faltered, but yeah. you know, her music, you know, the stuff she recorded in the fifties and sixties, was obviously still being played. You know, it's not like it just all of a sudden away. everyone stopped playing it. Yeah. So, um, she won that battle and then that went on to establish, uh, better, copyright protection and stuff for I guess as Tom Moon refers to as like legacy artists um, yeah. artists that you know aren't putting out currently you know big huge hit albums but had albums in the past and you know yeah and this is basically to, yeah like the you know sort of the I guess publishers or whatever try to put their you know success under the rug like it never happened and you know which I mean obviously that happens you know where they you know, the, the artist is not at the forefront anymore. And it's like, you know, we don't need to pay you because you're not famous anymore. And then she's like, oh, no, you know, if my music yeah. is still popping, you know, pay yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's check out this track. Um, the last track from Ruth Brown uh, from the album Miss Rhythm. This is Teardrops from My Eyes. <laughs> time it rains I think of you and that's the time I feel so blue when the rain starts to fall and my love comes tumbling down and it's raining teardrops from my eyes and the music Just because you said goodbye Although the sun is shining There's no summer skies And it's raining teardrops from my eyes Remember the night you told me I love Teardrops from my eyes, and we're going to move on to our third album, Jackson Brown, Late for the Sky, released in 1974. And, uh, you know, I had been aware of Jackson Brown for a long time. You know, I'd heard his name and seen his albums, and when we worked at the record store, saw his albums, mm-hmm. I've never listened to Jackson Brown ever. And uh, I have to say, I really like this album. I was yeah. kind of surprised at how much <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah, I I've I'd heard him, but I had not listened to this record. I think when this record came out, I was about five years old, um, and I I don't know if I've ever heard a song from this 
record on the radio. I mean, I've heard plenty of stuff from him on the radio, but nothing from this album. And, and I would agree with you. This is a very good record. Um, you know, just he's he's one of those guys. I mean, he, he's got a very distinguishable voice, obviously. And um, is such a great songwriter, I guess, singer songwriter, as, as a lot of people would call him. But uh, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. This is um, just a, a great example of, of his craft uh, and then singing songs, especially uh, love songs. Jackson Brown is, he's like one of the, one of the greatest songwriters I've, I mean, I've ever listened to. I mean, just, yeah, you know, but anyway, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, his his talent for writing love songs, and and it's just, you know, his uh, the the love songs aren't just blatant, like what you would hear on top forty radio. I mean, his yeah. his uh, lyrics are really uh, deep and introspective, and um, kind of self examining. And oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I. Part of his early history, um, I didn't know. He actually started with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, mm. which again is a, a group I've heard of but never heard. Yeah. Um, and this I thought was interesting because uh, of this, uh, the last artist we're going to talk about on the show. Early in his career, apparently, when he was living in Greenwich Village in New York, he backed Tim Buckley, uh-huh. uh, which is the f- who is the father of uh, Jeff, Jeff Buckley. Buckley. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, he became a big anti-nuclear activist. Um, that I knew. Yeah, apparently, um, really, uh, as it pertains to nuclear power, um, and actually founded a, you know, a foundation, uh, mm-hmm. for like a clean energy sort of foundation. Um, and uh, yeah, we're gonna start with this tune, "The Late Show," from his album "Late for the Sky," and you know. When I listened to this album, and like I mentioned, you know, I was really surprised at how much I liked it. I think one reason is that this is music that I would have heard like like I would have heard growing up, like from my parents. Like this is music yeah. that they would have liked, and I am shocked that they <laughs> never had an album of Jackson Brown, or at least not to my knowledge, because this is stuff like they would play and, and mm-hmm. like like I would hear, you know, when I was growing up. Um, you know, it's kind of the, the music is sort of a mix of folk and rock and country with this kind of, you know, really lush vocal harmony that, you know, sort of seventies vocal harmony. I don't know. I mean, I would sort of maybe compare them to some stuff James Taylor (laughs) did, even the Eagles, you know, um, that's a, that's a great comparison. Yeah. James Taylor and the Eagles as well. I mean, uh, uh, sometimes country, sometimes rock, definitely crooning. Somebody else that that reminds me a lot of Jackson Brown is Linda Ronstadt. Yes, um, yeah, and and that's they, the thing, you know, when my parents, when I was growing up, this is this is all stuff I heard constantly. Linda yeah. Ronstadt, James Taylor, uh, Eagles, all this stuff. But yeah, never Jackson Brown. I just I want to call out <laughs> my parents. I'm like, did you just what not? Happened? Yeah, would you you drop the ball here? Like, <laughs> you guys would have loved this, but maybe yeah. they had a st- maybe they had a stash you didn't know about. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but 
the, the, the records that your parents listened to, but they didn't want you to know that they listened to, you know? Yeah. After I um, like, um, when I was like five years old, I think I drew on my, one of my father's, uh, beach boys albums. So maybe they hid this one from me so I wouldn't draw all over it, but <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. So what did you think of the late show? Um, I, I think that is, is first of all, is it's just a, a, a great working of, of his voice, you know, kind of with, you know, really good, like you said, really good, deep, introspective lyrics where, you know, uh, he's a songwriter that can pick his own life apart, you know, you know, in, in a very critical sense, but in a tender sense, if, if that makes sense, um, you know, and, and just makes you kind of, you know, feel for him, you know, in a sense to where, you know, he he talks about how or we'll say like a relationship goes bad and and the things that he could have done differently and and issues going on, his own, you know personal stuff. I mean, he, he really does that like nobody else. I mean, you know, I mean he he I mean Jackson Brown is definitely not not for everybody. I mean you know, he, he can get kind of, you know, rocking, so to speak, but for the most part, he's best when he's, he's really kind of calm and, and like I said, you yeah. know, yeah, just deep into, you know, introspection on, on, on how the deal went bad as far as his relationship or, or the relationship, so to speak. I mean, that, that seems to be like the, you know, the, the way he goes. I mean, and I, I, I have a lot of respect for him in that sense. I'm sure the one thing about Jackson Brown, another thing about him too. I mean, he's he's not a bad looking dude, and I'm sure women probably, you know, at times follow him wherever he goes. I mean, if he if he plays a show, you know, I'm sure they they come out in droves. I mean, the guy he just seems to have that style about him, you know. And uh, and this song, I mean, just it exudes that it exudes that charisma about him that, you know, you know, very subtle, you know, quiet at times, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I know what you're I, saying. I mean, yeah, just, yeah. I mean, just his, his spirit is, is, it's just, it, it just exudes that, that, that amazing songwriter crooner, you know, you know, kind of sort of, you know, love Lorne, style i guess um yeah yeah well yeah let's check this out this first track from jackson brown's late for the sky this is the late show everyone i've ever known has wished me well anyway that's how it seems it's hard to tell maybe people only ask you how you're doing Cause that's easier than letting on how little they could care But when you know that you've got a real friend somewhere Suddenly all the others are so much easier to bear Now to see things clear it's hard enough I know while you're waiting for reality to show Without dreaming of the perfect love 
holding it so far above If you stumble onto someone real You'd never know You'd never know You could be with somebody who is lonely too Sometimes it doesn't show He might be trying to get across to you Words can be so And we just heard the late show, and we're going to move on to For a Dancer. Um, and this one uh, is even more in the vein, I think, of what you were <laughs> talking about than the late show. Um, it's Jackson Brown at his. Uh, oh, man, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, we keep using, you know, introspective, but um, this is just really sort of low key and uh intimate you know mm-hmm. uh this yeah. one um yeah what do you think of for a dancer uh like you said just <laughs> you know you know very intimate very very quiet um e- even romantic i mean you know that that's yeah. that's another thing i think about you know with with jackson brown i mean i mean he is he's a i i would say a moderately complicated romantic but you know definitely in the sense of 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 dealing with love that's 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 always first and foremost love and and relationships and and how they you know they do or don't work especially how they don't work i mean he he's got that down i mean and 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 again this one is like you said it's 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 very quiet i mean his his voice is always is that is at the center of everything you know and i mean you know, lyrically, just just very touching. You know, in a sense. I mean, I I think that's about as, as simple as I can put it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I <clears throat> I, I just I, I can see people listening to Jackson Brown and and you know trying to put things together and and, and make them work, yeah, or or maybe you know in the aftermath, so to speak, and and just trying to you know trying to figure out what happened. You know. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's like a sort of like a voice for the despondent or something. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a good way to put it. I mean, and again, like I said, he Jackson Brown's not he's not for everybody. I mean, some people would just you know, hey man, get over it. You know, let's 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 move on. It's a new day, but it it's not always that easy. I mean, you know, sometimes it's it's very hard. You know, especially when when you have a broken relationship, it's it's not easy to just turn the page. You you want to look at it. You want to go. You know. Can I have done something different? I mean, you know, was it me? You know, was it her? Was it the the atmosphere? You know, what what was it? You know, and I mean, he seems like somebody who who really looks at that picture and and 
and tries to take from it and then, you know, write it down and, and then sing about it in a way, like I said, like nobody else, even though we compared him to, you know, several people before. He has a very unique style. And I I, I really love Jackson Brown's voice. Um, always yeah. sincere, yeah. you know. Yeah. Just, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this. I think this is a, um, one of my most surprising discoveries. I mean, I, I don't know what idea I had about Jackson Brown in my head all these years, but um, whatever it was, it was not on point. So, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed this album a lot. Well, and, um, and then you, you think about the stuff that you, you would hear from from him on the radio. I mean, like, like running all empty is like the one song I always associate with him. You know, I don't um, even know that song. Yeah, running on, <laughs> running on. It. Anyway, um, again, you know, just you know, introspective relationships. But that one's kind of more upbeat, especially for him. Um, in the '80s, Jackson Brown had this song called "Tender as the Night." Oh man, that's that's such a very, very traditional, very quiet, mellow style of of Jackson Brown song. I mean, um and I mean I, I'm I'm glad you brought up his 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 sort of you know social side where he he protested uh you know the the nuclear power plants and uh he also I, I from what I understand was was really big on um the I guess with the different issues that Ronald Reagan had where he had you know obvious military occupations in in South America and in yeah yeah Mexico and it, I, that's something I kind of forgot about that he he was you know that you know socially conscious and political but but you know just obviously a guy that 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 feels very deeply yeah, uh, on, a, yeah. on a lot of levels uh and 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 writes some really really great songs really yeah. great lyrics I mean yeah it definitely um, comes across in his music oh yeah Definitely. Cool. Well, should we check out the second track? Yeah, yeah let's do that. All right. This is our last track from Jackson Brown. This is For a Dancer. Keep a fire burning in your eye. Pay attention to the open sky. You never know what will be coming. you'd always be around Always keeping things real by playing the clown Now you're nowhere to be found Yeah. 
was for a dancer by jackson brown and we're going to move on to our fourth album of anton bruckner his symphony number seven Uh, this is performed by the royal scottish national orchestra conducted by georg tintner tintner (laughs) 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 Um, released in 1999 and uh anton bruckner uh another romantic giant and we've, we've already done several of those uh, romantic, what I mean by that is uh, the romantic period, right? The 19th century in classical okay. music. So uh, he lived from 1824 to 1896. And, uh, you know, Anton Bruckner is, you know, an interesting character in classical music. You know, most of these uh, composers of the 19th century, for sure, uh, their lives, their personal lives sort of reflected their music. You know, we can look at Beethoven and Beethoven's life and, you know, his temperament and how he lived and all that stuff. And you can really hear all that in his music, you know, and a lot Mm -hmm. of other people, Brahms and uh, Wagner for sure, and uh, a lot of others. Uh, Anton Bruckner is one where his life does not mirror his music. Um, Mm -hmm. His music is this uh, vastly massive symphonic uh, work um you know uh huge in conception you know huge performing forces huge musical structures i mean this symphony number 7 is you know well over an hour long um it's freaking long <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh his life you know by contrast um was I don't know, almost demure, you know, very, um, you know, he came from a very humble background. He was a very humble person himself. He was, uh, you know, employed most of his life, um, as a teacher, you know, as a music teacher and, uh, usually in very sort of rural parts of uh, Austria and he was Austrian and, um, uh, he was very, sort of uh you know had a complex like he was never um never good enough that sort Mm. of complex you know Uh, and really really sort of idolized other composers especially richard wagner um uh who's sort of his hero and also you know wagner was uh you know one of his advocates um which he had a lot of advocates and uh you know it's interesting to read about Bruckner and Wagner and uh, Brahms because this is one of the original uh, two-sided music battles you know we have this uh, these factions you know in uh, Germany and Austria uh, that were loyal Mm -hmm. to Wagner and the people that were loyal to him like Bruckner and then the people that were loyal to Brahms and they represented these different sides of music Wagner represented 
the radical in music. Brahms represented uh, the more conservative, classical faction of music. Okay. And, you know, this this hadn't really existed before because music before this had been a lot more uh, heterogeneous, I guess. You know, uh, this is where really things started to splinter off and you had a lot of experimentation going on, uh, you know, versus this other camp, which was, was more, uh, you know, traditional, I guess. Okay. Um, and really it was heated. I mean, it was like, you know, I, the, one of the most current things I can think of is like the East coast versus West coast rap. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost just as heated, uh, as that, um, you know, it, you know, in its time, um, uh-huh. even in classical music, you know, recently in the seventies and eighties, there was a huge faction battle like this uh, centered around New York city between what was known as the downtown composers and the uptown composers. Um, the downtown composers, you know, were the ones that were incorporating a lot of, uh, rock and jazz and, you know, like John Zorn, John Zorn was part of that mm-hmm. downtown scene, uh, versus the uptown scene, which were the, uh, you know, mostly academic composers, you know, guys yeah. that taught at Juilliard and wrote uh, really sort of thorny, heady music, you know, that that yeah. was being kind of becoming old fashioned at the time. But anyway, um, so, yeah, uh, Bruckner, you know, was this sort of unwitting participant in, in this uh, battle. And... Uh, um, like I said, you know, he wrote these just ginormous, I guess is like the best word I can come up with, um, symphonies. <laughs> that That's what he focused on, these just huge, huge symphonies. And uh, we're going to, yeah, this is another one of those things where, you know, it's like, what do you pull? Because there's so much. Yeah, man, like I said, this is, you know, the symphony's well over an hour you know, this is like one piece that's well over an hour long and uh it just goes through so many themes and moods and you know changes and sections and you know it's very hard to pull two excerpts that's that will represent this a piece like this well you know? the funny funny thing about that i'm as i'm kind of looking and reading of him um uh, i guess he he had a, a term coined behind him called the the Bruckner problem. Um, when you when you have a piece that's that's so large and so varied, um, and I I had never really heard that, uh, but that's something I guess that people now associate with with him. You know, um, yeah, and I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm assuming that you know he just obviously, you know, despite you know his sort of you know, humble demeanor obviously had a lot going on uh, with inside himself, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bruckner is interesting, man. He's a real polarizing figure because, uh, I mean, before we, you know, did the research or whatever for this week's podcast, you know, Bruckner was one of those composers that I'm I'm not really that familiar with. I mean, I don't really know Bruckner's music very well. And... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, but I'm a classical musician, you know, I've gone through, I've been in that classical music world for a long time. And so I know a lot of people 
that know Bruckner's music very well. And it's really polarizing because people either up and down freaking hate it or just adore it. You know, there's just like no in between. Mm. That, and that, uh, I take I would take that as a high compliment. I mean, yeah, as a musician, yeah. I mean, I you either you either gonna really love me or you hate my guts. I mean, yeah. I, I I take that. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, let, we're gonna start with uh, an excerpt from the second movement, the Adagio, um, and I'm gonna again butcher German. Um, sehr <laughs> feierlich und sehr langsam which I guess means very solemn and very slow. Um, and uh, this movement apparently was kind of a, an elegy in, in a sort of uh, tribute to uh, Richard Wagner. I guess when uh, Bruckner was writing this piece, uh, Wagner was basically on his deathbed. I mean, he was really, really ill. They knew the end was was nigh. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh and uh, I think, you know, towards the end of this movement, uh, towards the end when uh, Bruckner was writing it, he got news that Wagner actually had died. Mm. Uh, and there's supposedly towards the end of the movement, this symbol crash, which is supposed to, yeah, Bruckner, you know, reportedly supposed to have written this in right when he received news of Wagner's death, right? Mm. Um whether that's true or not, I'm not sure, but uh, it was on Wikipedia, so it has to be true, right? <laughs> oh, God. Get it. It looks like it started on that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, a couple things about this movement. Um, one thing I love about this movement is how lush it is. I mean, the string writing and stuff is just so full and lush. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's really sounds like Bruckner's reflection of uh, Wagner. I mean, it's got this heroic quality, which we know that uh, Bruckner sort of idolized uh, Wagner. But at the same time, it's sort of got this very solemn feeling and this feeling of loss to it just all at once. Um, Another interesting thing is he uses Wagner tubas. So, in this piece, a quartet of Wagner tubas. And um, Wagner was like such a pervasive musician of the time and so famous. And, 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 you know, I don't know, you know, when Wagner's a whole other subject, I don't know how Mm. the hell Wagner got the things done that he got done during his life. It's unbelievable. But anyway, um, one thing that Wagner did was, uh, you know, for one of his operas, he wanted this certain brass sound and uh, he thought that, you know, he's like, you know, I, I, the tube, the, the trombone is a little strident, but you know, I want something sort of in between a trombone and a, you know, like a French horn. So he went to um, France to Adolf Sachs, the guy who invented the saxophone mm-hmm. and uh, worked with him to develop these Wagner tubas, which are these, these uh, almost a cross between a French horn and a tuba, sort of, um, mm. which, you know, I mean, the sound is, you know, you have to have a really trained, highly trained ear to really be able to discern a Wagner tuba from a trombone. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, you know, Wagner I, I, could, I do not have that ear, but I, yeah, I yeah. Wagner, <laughs> Wagner had the, you know, 
the cloud, I guess, to, to do this. And um, mm-hmm. so he had these instruments invented and they were dubbed Wagner tubas. And anyway, Bruckner uses these um, heavily in this movement. And uh, you can hear these sort of, they're very powerful, you know, sort of almost emerging out of this lush sea of strings, you know. Um, uh, you can hear them calling out, you know, from from this texture. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any Anything you want to say about this? No, uh, just uh, the fact that what you said about the, the composition being lush, I, I definitely felt that too. I mean, the whole thing about the, the French horn tuba mix, I... That I did not catch, but uh, you know, this is obviously something that I I had not ever listened to before. It was a composer I was not familiar with before, but uh, you know, definitely uh, was uh, impressed by the the like you said the, the lush arrangement and 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 how dramatic it is, and um, you know, good discovery. Um, you know, definitely kind of interesting to kind of look at his life and and definitely in, you know the ties with uh with Wagner, you know, it's some uh interesting stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's check this out. This first excerpt from uh Anton Bruckner's Symphony number no. 7 from the second movement adagio.
And we just heard uh, excerpt from the Adagio from Anton Bruckner, Symphony Number no. Seven. And we're going to move on to the third movement. So this piece is in four movements. Uh, we're playing excerpts from the second and the third movements. Uh, the third movement, Scherzo, Ser Schnell, which I think means uh, very fast. Um, and this movement features uh, again the Wagner tubas uh, heavily. Uh, it features the brass heavily. And you get this really heroic theme in the brass, you, you know, really kind of powerful. And uh, you can hear it going through the orchestra, going through the brass instruments, you know, presented in, presented in all these uh, different sort of contrapuntal uh, presentations, you know, in canon and on top of each other. And uh, uh, it all sort of racing towards this, uh, like, big climax. Mm-hmm. Um in their uh, sort of big heroic kind of climax. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you listen to this whole symphony, I mean, man, it's so much fodder for film scores mm-hmm. <laughs> these days. I mean, you can just hear, you know, uh, when you listen to this stuff and li- listen to like the Brahms and Wagner and this and, and Mahler and, and even it, later into Stravinsky and stuff, you know, this is, these are like the roots of like, all the music that we hear in film scores now, really. Mm. Uh, I yeah. mean, I, I just saw the Avengers yesterday, and uh, you know, even there, there's these you know big orchestral themes, heroic themes, and all originated here. Mm. Um, I loved the Avengers, by the way. But anyway, yeah, it was good. Uh, if you if you guys have not seen that, it's just <laughs> an aside. You need to go see that movie. Yeah. It's just um, if you if you like superhero movies at all, even if you you didn't read the Avengers. Um, go see it. Yeah, it was yeah. very well done. Yeah. Well, Mitch and I are both comic book nerds from way back. So. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. So uh, yeah, anything you want to say about this scherzo? Um. No. Uh. One thing I kind of was noticing just about the overall uh, symphony, I did not realize uh, the ties it had to a very dark figure in history, uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh. Well, Hitler was, yeah, loved Wagner for sure. Yeah. 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 And I, I, you know, apparently he, he felt, um, so moved by, um, this symphony. He compared it, uh, I guess with Beethoven's ninth symphony, uh, where he, he thought it was, it was that good. I I, I don't know. I mean, just, just something, just kind of an aside, you know. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad for for Bruckner. I mean, that that <laughs> Hitler loved his music so much. Yeah, and it, it wasn't his fault. I mean, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, just yeah. yeah. And and at the time, I mean, things were were somewhat different, but obviously, you know, still very, very dark. I mean, you know, just the world, whole worldview on that. I mean, yeah. Well, he, that that originated. Yeah, I mean that that really. Um, was rooted in Wagner because you know uh, Hitler and we will we can talk about this when we talk about Wagner you know like a hundred shows from now or whatever but yeah. <laughs> but but you know Hitler was looking for things that were uh, you know German in in a sort of super hyper patriotic sense and yeah. Um, yeah Wagner dealt with themes that were almost like German mythic sort of themes and you know, German mythic heroes and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and, and really, you know, painted, you know, the, the German and and the sort of German race as very mythic and heroic. And of course, you know, 
Hitler latched on to that, you know, for, oh, yeah. for obvious reasons. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But poor Bruckner. Um, I know. Just yeah, I'm, I'm sure famous, he was, but infamous in that man. Yeah, that he sense, he was yeah. such a like I said, he was such a humble man, and and I I doubt that he he would have probably been very thrilled with you know his music being used in that way but um but um yeah let's check out this uh this last excerpt from this third movement the scherzo of uh, anton bruckner's symphony number seven
We just heard the scherzo from Anton Bruckner's Symphony Number no. 7. And we're going to move on to our last album for the day. Uh, Jeff Buckley, his album Grace, released in 1994. And uh, this is an album uh, that I was very, very familiar with. This is one of probably... Jeff Buckley is, you know, one of my... I love Jeff Jeff Buckley. He was amazing. Um, amazing artist, amazingly talented uh, artist. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think of Grace? Um, I will honestly say that when this album first came out, and, it, and it's funny, to, to, it's a very funny story. Okay, when we worked together, we were selling retail music. Uh, one of the reps from the record label came in with this record. And our boss at the time, who I will not mention, was was very excited about this record uh, and as well as a rep. I did not like it at all. The the first day I heard it, and I think wait, who know, who was the boss? What was his first name? His name was David. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, I I mean I don't know if I was just in a mood that day or my mind was somewhere else, but. I mean, you know, you're in a big store and things are kind of moving around and clanking around. I really wasn't able to listen, you know, very closely to the records. As a matter of fact, it was hard to hear, you know, most of it. So, I, I mean, my first impressions were not very good. But then when I got away from all the, the, the action, so to speak, and was able to kind of listen to it, you know, on my own, you know, I started to notice little things. And I was like, okay, this is this is very good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like unusually very good. I mean, I was, I was surprised. I mean, I, it was a record that initially I, I totally missed when I first heard it. Um, and even um, when you kind of read about it, the, the initial sales for the album were, they were awful. I mean, it didn't do very well when it first came out, but then it was one of those records that people, you know, started to read about and talk about. And then the next thing you know, um, it becomes this this huge success, you know that that kind of you know sort of coincides with um, his passing, um, and then it just got all really weird after that. Like I don't know, sort of I guess Heath Ledger and playing the Joker and Batman, you know, where it's you know this sort of like walk off home run type performance you know um yeah 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 that's a good analogy um yeah i didn't discover this album uh until much later i mean i, I think it probably was released uh right before i started working at the said music retail place yeah um <clears throat> so i missed it there and uh by the time he died i was out of that and in music school and, and just oblivious to uh to the whole thing so i didn't discover him until oh i don't know 2001 or something um mm-hmm. and uh i think i mentioned this on the show last time but i discovered him through uh, a live album called live at cine i cine not sure um and we would just I love that album. And I mean, just, just listening to it all the way through, it just, man, just, it just blew me away. What, what this guy could do. Yeah. Uh, how versatile he was and just how talented he was. I mean, there's a, there's a, a point on that album where, uh, 
someone in the crowd, you know, and it's just in a really small club or something. And it's just Jeff up there with his guitar. That's it. And um, some guy in the crowd uh, yells out, hey, play some Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan (laughs) as like a joke. I mean, you can hear as a joke. And so Jeff Buckley's like, oh, well, you know, I don't really know you know, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, but I, I know his music and I love, I love him. And he says, he's my Elvis. He talks about how <laughs> Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan is his Elvis. And then he just goes into this Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan song, um, singing it in that style. Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, if you guys don't know, is a Pakistani singer or was a uh, really amazing artist. And, um, but it, you know, has a certain, style of singing and and it's it's unbelievable like i was just the first time i heard it i was like are you kidding like this so is just, just a, a this is just off the cuff turn yeah yeah i um and uh anyway yeah but um and i discovered grace afterwards and what um what intrigued me about grace was uh some of the or initially was some of the um track selection like there's a the first track that we're going to listen to corpus christi carol uh, as a piece by Benjamin Britten, uh, who we we talked about his opera a couple of weeks ago, Peter Grimes, and um, you know Britten was one of the major classical composers of the 20th century, but you certainly never find him on pop albums. No, you know. No. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what? He he's doing a a piece by Benjamin Britten? What? You know? So I I listened to it, and it it's unbelievable. In this piece, you know, how he can do that and then how he can do a piece like this and then switch to a piece like, you know, Last Goodbye, which is, you know, a 90s sort of pop anthem. But also, you know, you can hear like uh, a string orchestra section that's sort of Indian or, or Pakistani maybe in style, you know, mixed in with this sort of bluesy, um, I don't know alternate alternate grunge sort of tune you know yeah Um, the thing that i keep thinking about with with his choices is obviously when you think about who his father is and 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 then maybe you know both his parents and the 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 upbringing that he must have had and how how much that played on on his influence in an organic sense especially where you know he doesn't you know try to directly you know, say like, say like copy exactly the way his father sounded, but, you know, take that influence and make it his own and then make it something brand new and maybe even better. Um, you know, I, I, I love him in that respect to where obviously he, he has an influence, you know, you know, Tim Buckley, who was a great musician and, and a, you know, innovative musician on his own, but it seems like Jeff does something even even more different, you know, for the age of which he came. And um, and it just incorporates a lot of different things. You know, and like I said, when when I first, you know, tried to listen, not really paying attention, I, I totally missed it. I mean, I, I just really I'm grateful that I, I eventually caught on. But, uh, you know, trying to listen in a in a tip because you got to think about when this record came out. I mean, 
you know, it was early 90s. I mean, the, the thing that was going on, I mean, r- rap music was kind of in a revolution. You know, everything was 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 loud and banging. You had, like you said, you had grunge music. Um, well, you didn't say you had grunge. You mentioned grunge. But I mean, you know, groups like Nirvana and Pearl Jam were, were jumping off and everything was was a lot more, you know, kinetic, you know, if you would. I mean, the energy was was a lot higher as far as what was selling. But he uh, didn't really go that route at all. I mean, he went for a, a much more, you know, artistic bent and where he, he looked very, very deep, you know, into some, you know, musical styles and, and, and you know, sort of approaches and, and, and brought out some really, you know, brilliant, brilliant material on this record. Um, and, and people still are, are, are very excited. I mean, you know, some, you know, 10 years later or whatever, how long it's been, and, you know, you know, longer than 10 years, uh, several years later. I mean, it's, it's still amazing, you know, yeah. how well this record is received and, and, and praised even now. Um, but again, anyway, you were talking about, um, you know, his, uh, his association with uh, I oh, with, with, with uh, Britain. Yeah, well, well, Britain and the the, the Pakistani artists you talked about. Where oh, oh, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I used to see that guy's records and and you know knew he was you know from you know overseas. I, I wasn't sure if he was from the Middle East or what, but I I I figure if if he if he takes a song from someone like that and just kind of you know on a dime pulls out one of his songs and sings it in that tradition. Yeah. I would, I would be really impressed. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in a sense to where it's, it's not something you, you would expect at all, let alone from him, but in that setting at all, you know, um, just yeah. almost as if he channeled the guy's sort of style and, and brought it, you know, from out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. When he does that on that live album, I mean, you can hear in the crowd in the small crowd that's there, they're like, at first they're kind of laughing because when he first starts the tune, you just think he's, he's sort of joking around, you know, because it's like, what the, you know? And then he actually goes into it and it's, you know, this whole song and the people in the, you can, you can hear the people in the crowd are like, they're like stunned. I mean, mm. they're just yeah. I mean, it's anyway. Um, but uh, uh, the first track that we're gonna play is this Corpus Christi Carol, um, uh, by uh, you know, it's this adaptation of um this piece by Benjamin Britten, um, that was used in a uh, uh, a bigger piece of his called A Boy Was Born. It's like a a big piece for choir, right? Um, and uh. Jeff Buckley adapted this piece from this piece of Benjamin Britten, uh, which in that in itself is, um, uh, I don't know, just an, an amazing thing for, for Buckley to do, you know, take, take this piece from this big choir piece of Benjamin Britten. And, you know, I'm really familiar with Benjamin Britten. I like his music and I know a lot of his music and I've never even heard this piece of, <clears throat> of Britten. Um, so, you know, it'd be interesting to, you know, how did Jeff Buckley come across this piece? But, um, you know, this, uh, Corpus Christi Carol is uh, the words 
are really old. I mean, um, it's, uh, you know, an anonymous medieval poem basically. Um, and, uh, you know, Buckley said, um, Buckley himself said, he said the Carol is a fairy tale about a Falcon who takes the beloved of the singer to an orchard. The singer goes looking for her and arrives at a chamber where his beloved lies next to a bleeding knight in a tomb with Christ's body in it. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you know, his vocal performance on this is, uh, haunting and, um, just an amazingly virtuosic display of what yeah. he could do vocally really high falsetto yeah yeah, this yeah. Is sweet <laughs> yeah what do you think of this one uh yeah again like you said just his his style is 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 very unique and very radical in the sense to where he he well going back to the whole comic book geek thing there was a, a sort of like villain if you will there were a couple of them actually in in comic book lore um there was this one villain called the super adaptoid um who could basically take on the the attributes of anyone he would see with his own eyes um that's what this guy is like i mean he he almost can play anything and and play it in a style where he's still at the core of whatever he's doing, yeah. you know, but it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, again, like I said, a, it's not something you notice right away. You know, I mean, especially if you just kind of very casually going about whatever, I mean, if you really love music and you're, you're kind of, you know, into different things, you know, then you'll, you'll kind of, it'll kind of hit you where like, this guy is not typical of anything, <laughs> you know, yep. I yep. mean, he, he he does a lot of things vocally and, and musically, um, and and seems to like a, a very very large variety. Like going back to what you said about where did he get his influence for the Benjamin Britten? I mean, when I was looking at at different clips this week, I saw a, a young children's choir singing that that piece that was inspired by this song, and I wondered. Maybe, you know, he was in the same scenario where he grew up, you know, singing in a choir and, and yeah. remembers this song. Could have been. Yeah. And um, I mean, just just somebody who who takes his musical influence from childhood on and just uses whatever to bring. I mean, that that's very inspiring. I mean, someone who I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, is not really worried about selling records because initially he did not. You know, but just wanted to make a really good record, wanted to make it from his heart and, and wanted it to have his, I guess, DNA even in it where it wasn't just, you know, we're going to make this and, and see if we can make the label happy and, and try to have a hit. No, I want this to be very personal. You know, I want this to be, you know, a reflection of me, which it, this is a very great example of a, of a record that's a total reflection of the artist. Um, and a lot of what he was about and what a lot of what he loved, a lot of his influence, um, just, uh, like I said, I just, I, I never really had missed a record as bad as I had with this record initially. I mean, I totally, I, like I said, I, 
I did not listen to it the way I should have at first. I, I did not like it at all. But um, it was a record I really had to go away. And I mean, anybody who's listened to this and didn't like it, I mean, I, I highly suggest you take it and then try to listen to it like by yourself without distraction. And if you still don't like it, listen to it two or three more times <laughs> and see if yeah, if yeah. it if you if it, there's a change because it's just one of those records that that it 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 did not hit me at first. But you know, I'm I'm glad it hit me at this point. You know, I mean, just like you said, I mean, so so innovative, so so radically different from so much that was going on at that time, especially when it came out. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you want to listen to the first track? Yeah. Let's go ahead and, and listen to, uh, to this track. Most definitely. All right. This is the Corpus Christi Carol by Jeff Buckley. And we just heard the Corpus Christi Carol, and we're going to move on to uh, his uh, tomb that has become so vastly pervasive um, over the past decade or so, um, his version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And uh, we really had to play this tune. Um, yeah, I know. We, we, we kind of talked about we, we weren't going to play this because of... Uh, you know, the, the songs are kind of, they have the same kind of mood, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I thought if, if if we don't play this song, people are, will, will be mad with us. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, it's just one of those songs that uh, it's it's iconic, really. I mean, Leonard Cohen's version was, was really great. But um, the the sound of first of all the sound and the spirit in his voice and this song is 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 very touching i mean that's that's about as simple as i can put it um you know it it, it it's just one of those one of those rare performances on an album or a record that 
that it becomes bigger than the the record itself. It becomes transcendental almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the way he did it, especially. I mean, I mean, it's just. It, it, it's it's like it could be a song that that could have been popular a thousand years ago, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's just like I said, it, it goes beyond, you know, the the time that it was released. I I I guess that's what transcendental means. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, it's something. Uh, you know, you you talked about the super adaptoid <laughs> thing, and how you know he can take. Uh, other people's song but still you know keep the core the core you know it still stays jeff buckley yeah and this is an example of a song where i think it goes way beyond that where he took a song an existing song and uh this is almost like you know it's weird to say because it's a cover but it's become almost the definitive version like he almost like he he owns this song now i agree um and uh man that's that's a really difficult thing to do you know yeah it's it's not easy to take someone someone as 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 big a figure as leonard cohen is and and make the song better than what he made i'm i'm sure leonard cohen was was very grateful <laughs> you know oh yeah to to have his song you know cuz some people uh some people don't like that. Um, for instance, Whitney Houston, when when she redid I, "I'll Always Love You," and and had it become a bigger hit, because Dolly Parton had a very big hit with that song, but apparently was not all that pleased initially when Whitney Houston made that song a bigger hit than she did. I think you know, as of late, she's kind of you know maybe sound a little different, but at first, I don't think she was as happy about that, you know, for whatever huh. reason. You know, so, but, you know, to have a song like this and then, like you said, sort of own this song and have people come behind you, Katie Lang, and and also cover the song in the style that he did. I mean, if you saw, if you see her, her performance of this song at, at the Olympics, the last Olympics, I mean, she, I mean, she nails this song, but she does it in the same Style. Yeah. yeah, she does Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah. Yeah. Not Leonard yeah. Cohen's Hallelujah. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, she she's amazing, by the way. I mean, just I love her. She may have one of the greatest voices that this planet will ever see. You know, I mean, I mean, she does an amazing version, but it but it's it's inspired by him, you know. And and then this song, I mean, the relation of it in his passing too just just galvanizes the the feeling of this song even more yeah where oh yeah you think absolutely. about him and you think about the subject matter and it's uh it's it's very 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 sentimental to hear this song and and to think about how many people have heard this song and related it to you know you know various goings on people passing away you know people in the stages of passing away people you know you know, going through a state of grace, so to speak, in in this life where they're they're on the mountaintop or they're in the valley. I mean, just all kinds of scenarios and and ideas and and thoughts come out. You know, just from listening to this song and how people have probably related to it. Um, you know, just yeah. just a really really cool sort of 
alignment of the planets, so yeah. to speak. Well, um, and I think we need to talk about his death a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when I first, uh, you know, discovered Jeff Buckley and discovered his his uh, life and, you know, early death and all that stuff, you know, initially I would see that, you know, he he died, you know, he drowned in Memphis in 1996. Uh-huh. And that was it. He drowned. I was thinking, well, what, you know, what happened? You know, like, how do you just, you know, like, what what were the circumstances? Apparently, from what I've read, there's an account where he was out there um, on the Mississippi with one of his roadies. And the roadie recounts that um, Jeff apparently went into the river for a swim while singing uh, Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was in the river swimming, and I guess the roadie sort of turned his attention away, and uh, a tugboat went by, and uh, he turned around, and Jeff was gone. Mm. And they did a search for him, and you know, basically the next day discovered his body. Um, and people say that you know, apparently he just got pulled under by an undertow. Yeah, that was um, maybe exacerbated by the the tugboat that went went by and just couldn't get back up and uh you know there's a lot of discussion on the internet of what you know did he do it on purpose and all this kind of stuff and i think the consensus is no it was just a real freak accident but there's still all this mystique surrounding it because really of a lot of his songs you know when you listen to a song like last goodbye or or a, a number of his other songs, and the lyrics all center around this idea of either, you know, uh, this is our last moment together because I'm not going to yeah. be around, or, or, or you know, I, I'm not going to be around very long, or there's all this this sort of theme running through a lot of his songs, you know, so of course it sparks all this, yeah. you know, conjecture and stuff. Like uh, a, but, it was like a foreshadow, you know, like he was trying yeah, to tell everybody. Yeah. And and I, I I've even even though they, the the autopsy said you know there were no drugs or alcohol or nothing that that's something too that that seems to not want to go away that that he was on drugs that day or he was drinking that day or he overdosed and 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 none of that's true I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know it's, not it's just a, sort of like a like you said a mythology that that built right. up around his death somebody else that comes to mind like that is bruce lee where when right. he died there was <laughs> yeah. his death was like this big question mark like how did this happen you know and then everybody kind of had their spin on it and he was one of those guys that no one could really come to one solid conclusion was it an accident did he do it on purpose and and all that all that yada yada you know well, like you said it, it seems like it just it was just a, a just a freak accident, you know, from the evidence anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was. And I mean, uh, I think as far as drugs and alcohol, I think, uh, from what I've read, uh, Jeff Buckley was very, uh, careful about those things because, uh, his father, Tim Buckley, who we're going to talk about next week, um, he died young age 28 from, uh, basically an overdose of drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And I think, you know, that would, uh, you know, have a big impact on anybody's life, you know. So, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, yeah, you want to listen to the last track? Yeah, this is a this is a really great song. I love this song. Oh yeah. Just uh, 
you know, his version and Leonard's version too. But um, yeah, this is a hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. a time when you let me know what's really going on below but now you never show that to me do you but remember when I moved in you and the holy dove was moving too and every breath we drew is hallelujah hallelujah Hallelujah, It's not a cry that you hear at night It's not somebody who's seen the light It's a cold and it's a broken Hallelujah 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 just heard hallelujah by jeff buckley and that's it for this week that is it uh, for this week <laughs> lots of good stuff this week lots of fun yeah cool. definitely yeah man if uh if any of you would like to send us an email you can send us an email at all the uh god 
wrong podcast at uh <laughs> 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com um you can look at our website at 1000rp.blogspot.com you can look at us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp or twitter.com slash anthony landman or twitter.com slash what's your twitter oh <laughs> capital m capital l capital d capital t w e e t m l d tweet all right um and uh yeah you can join us on facebook also and if you would uh like to and we would appreciate it if you would head over to itunes and leave us a rating and a review and that will help us in our visibility and uh, reaching more listeners and we will read your review on the show probably probably most (laughs) definitely yeah um and uh you can also head to our website uh if you want to purchase uh and please purchase uh the music that you love and like and discover from this podcast. Do not download it for free. Uh, <laughs> um, purchase the music. Uh, and if you would, uh, just head over to our website. We have links to all the albums that we talk about. And if you purchase the album through our links on our site, we'll get a little kickback and that'll help with uh, uh, the expenses we have to uh, incur on the show. Um and you can also head over to our website uh, and learn how you can sponsor the show. Um, so, next week, what do we got coming next week? Uh, Lord Buckley is Royal Hypnus, a uh, radical jazz artist who uh, I cannot wait to get into him. Um, the aforementioned uh, Tim Buckley, uh, Dream Letter, live in London, 1968. Uh, Buckwheat Zydeco. Buckwheat Zydeco Party, famous, uh, legendary Zydeco artist, the mean accordion player, uh, Buffalo Springfield retrospective. Oh, this would be good. And uh, the mystery of the Bulgarian voices, or Le Mystery des Voix Bulgarie. I think that's how you pronounce that. Uh, the Bulgarian Women's National Radio and Television Chorus, uh, which I'm actually a fan of. <laughs> you are. I am. Uh, ironically, uh, you know, aforementioned retail music store had its perks, and one of them was uh, free music in the mail every day, almost. And I remember getting a CD from them and putting it on and was just blown away. I mean, they pretty much are mostly acapella and it's usually like a, you know, just a group of 12, maybe a dozen women, two dozen women. And they they just had this amazing vocal style and range. I mean, at times almost haunting. And anyway, you know, I like them. We'll talk about them. Next Interesting. Week. I've never even heard of it. So. Hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Cool. I, I I still I have some of their music on my iPod. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Wow. Um, well, cool. Yeah, we'll get into all that next week. And uh, yeah, if there's nothing else, I guess we can uh, call it for this week. Yep. Uh, it's been a good week. Uh, rest in peace, Donna Summer. Rest in peace, Chuck Brown. Uh, you guys and, will be missed. Yeah. Rest in peace, Dietrich. Feature Discal. Yep. Yep. All right. 
you guys have a great week it's been good talking again tony all right man you have a great week too and uh yeah see everybody next week for new stuff all right bye everybody